If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine. And we're pleased to bring you a very special offer. Subscribe to BBC History magazine today and you can choose a book worth up to £30. Choose from either Queens of the Crusades by Alison Weir, The Children of Ashen Elm by Neil Price, Agent Sonia by Ben McIntyre or The Story of China by Michael Wood. Not only that, you'll also get every issue of BBC History magazine delivered direct to your door, all from just £22.45. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history book. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. You'll receive your book within 28 days of ordering. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is the author Maaza Mengiste, who joined me to discuss her Booker Prize shortlisted book, The Shadow King. Published earlier this year, the book's narrative unfolds against the backdrop of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. And as you'll hear in the interview, it's inspired by Maaza's own family history and based on a huge amount of historical research. So I think the best thing to do to kick us off would be if you could give us an idea, give us a flavour of where you start your story and some of the characters that you follow. Well, my story is set in 1935 during Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia in an attempt to colonize it. Ethiopia was independent. Britain had its colonies, France had its colonies, and Mussolini said it's time for Italy to have something too. So uh, the invasion was to, you know, to establish an Italian presence there. And um, I, you know, I had heard the stories growing up of a poorly equipped Ethiopian army rising up and eventually defeating one of the most advanced militaries in the world at that time. Um, and the, the story is set in that period and goes through to the end of the war in 1941, when Ethiopia 
somehow managed to win. Um, I think for a lot of people in the West, this is a story which has been somewhat overshadowed by World War II um, and the experiences of everything that happened in Europe. Why did you think that this was a story that you wanted to to bring to an English-speaking audience and that you thought would be a really good um, setting for a novel? Well, um, you know, I've always been interested in World War II. I've always found it a fascinating period. Uh, partly because I feel that World War II, in, at least in modern history, forced us to contend with questions of human decency, of justice, dignity, courage, determination, all these big themes that we tend to live with and question. World War II felt very pivotal to the way we, be, you know, we begin to understand how we should be treating human beings, what's, what we could have done to prevent certain things, what we need to do now. Um, so on that end, I, I just find that, that era fascinating. Um, but, you know, I grew up with these stories of this war, and it shaped my understanding of what it means to be Ethiopian, the, the sense that Ethiopians were victors in an attempt to colonize them, um, that there were, you know, these farmers, these people who were illiterate, who had maybe never traveled further than five or ten kilometers from their home, rose up and charged against tanks and artillery with old rifles and won. So this felt mythic in my mind. And when I was thinking about a next book after my first one, I already knew this was the story I wanted to do. Um, it, it felt to me a way to approach World War II uh, because this was a, many, what many historians say was the first real war of World War II. It really determined the sides, the alliances that were building um, into the 30s and 40s. Uh, I found that also really fascinating um, and you know, it, this war was on the front pages. And you're absolutely right, Ellie. Until Hitler invaded Poland, until World War II really kicked in, everyone was talking about Ethiopia. And then it just disappeared. You mentioned there that you were brought up with, with these stories. I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about your own family's connection to um, this period of history, which I think it inspired the book in some ways, if I'm right. Well, in some ways, any time that my family would have a gathering and someone would walk through the door, invariably somebody would point and say, oh, so-and-so fought in this battle in this area and did this, or so-and-so is the relative of this person who did this. Uh, I knew about my grandfather from my father's side his brothers who fought in the war, his cousins. Uh, I knew of the, of the heroics and, and the people who died, my relatives who died in this. I conceived of this war as a man's story because this is, this, this is what I was told. And um, I was proud of that. I thought the women in my family were caretakers collecting water, making them, you know, and those are the stories I heard too. Oh, your grandmother used to, you know, crochet scarves, knit scarves, all the women did this. It was not until after I was done with the book, until I was getting ready to turn in the final draft, and I had gone to Ethiopia for a final research 
trip, for location, making sure that my battle sites were exactly the way that I intended them to be, that my mother told me really casually that my great-grandmother had enlisted in the war. I had no idea. This was after years of research, years of talking to her, years of telling her, I think I found a woman. If I found one, I think I found five. This is a classic mum move. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, you know, when, when, she, said, when I, she told me this after a 10-day road trip with her, where I was with, we were with my cousin, we drove through all of these towns in the highlands and talking the entire time about the war, about relatives, about this. And when she told me this and I said, why didn't you tell me? She said, you never asked. And I was just floored by that, that she didn't think in my conversations with her about history, that my great-grandmother's participation in this war was also history. So that's, of course, one of the central themes of the book, that we have these female protagonists that that transform themselves into warriors. Can you tell us about some of the roles that women did take on in the war that possibly, you know, might surprise us to hear about and how you were inspired by them? Well, women were doing the roles that in some ways we would imagine they were collecting the dead, taking care of the wounded, getting water, you know, cooking the food, all those things. Um, but they were also fighting in the front lines. They were the, right there with the men charging against the Italians. And I've always had this, you know, as soon as I found this out, and I found this out through um, one day just going through the New York Times of 1935, every single page, every single issue, and I found a tiny little article, November 1935, of a woman who picks up the rifle of her fallen husband and leads 2,000 of his men into battle and wins against the Italians. And when I read that, there were two things. Number one, she had to be close enough to just pick up the rifle and continue the charge. So she was already fighting. And number two, she won. These men followed her. This was not unusual. Uh, And I thought wait a minute, this is something else that I had no idea about. And can you imagine, Ellie, what it might have meant for Italians who have such a sense of manhood and womanhood to be shooting at a woman and what that does to their sense of what war is and their own strength? Um, Those were the questions that really built the novel. What does it mean to be a man if, you know, war makes a man out of you, but you're fighting with or shooting at women. As you mentioned there, the, the Italian perspective is really important here. And alongside the Ethiopian protagonist, we also see things through the eyes of Italians who participated in the war. Why was it important to you to look mm. from the perspective mm-hmm. of both sides here? I was really interested in what it might have been like for Italians to to step into this war, to enlist in it, to fight against Ethiopians. What were they thinking? You know, how does fascism work? How does authoritarian authoritarianism work um, so that it can convince huge numbers, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of young men to kill other human beings who don't look like them? 
How does that racism work? Um, and I thought that the only way that I would be able to approach some of this, because I was really making an inquiry on bigotry. And I thought, I need to do this because that's the only way I'm going to understand or try to understand what's going on in the heads of some of these people. And I mean, even some of the people that are living that are today, I mean, these are questions for today also, as we see authoritarianism, authoritarianism rise and, and racial violence. Um, what is it like to be a racist? And how do I enter into these characters and get them to say things about people who look like me, who are my people, and make it sound authentic and somehow still, <laughs> as a writer, be okay inside? Well, can you tell us a bit about your process when you're doing something like that, when you're trying to enter the perspective of somebody who lived in a completely different time under a completely different ideology, as you say, often opposed to one that you would hold your own. As a writer, how do you inhabit that? The one thing I had to understand is they were human beings. And these were men that um, that had grown up, for a majority of them had grown up in their villages and were as poor as the Ethiopians, if not more poor. They were surprised sometimes at the kinds of the the things, the, the the material possessions that Ethiopians had that they could not afford themselves back home. They were very poor. A lot of them were illiterate, just like Ethiopians. They were farmers or artisans, just like Ethiopians. Um, they had not traveled far from their small, tiny towns, just like the Ethiopians. So, in once on one side, these there was a similarity there. Um, and I had to remember that, that for them, it was an adventure, some, a way to get out of poverty, to have some, they would never be able to travel like this. Um, and in, my, in the process of my research, one of the things, there were two things. Um, someone that I was talking to, a descendant of one of these soldiers, kept saying to me again and again in my encounters with her, you don't understand, Maza, my father was a good man. He was a good man. And she kept saying this again and again to me. And in moments when I was furious, you know, because of my research, because of knowing what they did, she would stop me and say, mm, he was a good man and I loved him. And it showed me that these men were loved and they had the capability of loving. And so I had to integrate that into the characters because that's who human beings are. Um, and another thing that helped me with my research and helped me not write with a clenched jaw <laughs> was um, I, I was going to flea markets and I was looking for photographs taken by these soldiers in this time. They're personal photographs the families would get rid of as they passed away. I would, I would be there in Italian flea markets in every little town I was ever in. Um, and also I started getting, collecting photographs of weddings from that era, you know, baby pictures. And when I started writing the scenes with them, I would put those photographs on my desk so I could see that these men were more than just that moment that I was depicting on the page. Uh, and that's how I was able to, to work through those scenes. 
Well, I, I want to ask you about the, the photographs because they are a device that you use in the novel. So your central Itali- Italian character, Ettore, he, he carries a camera around and you get um, depictions of, literary depictions of, of the photos that he takes. Why was that an important device for you to use in the book? Um, I see photo- photographs as a visual narrative. And I knew that Mussolini was very savvy with photography, with visual arts, the art deco, um, you know, propaganda posters that, that exploded across Italy that are frankly beautiful, but they're propaganda. He knew how to use images. And, um, you know, before he invaded, he sent photojournalists into Ethiopia in order to catalog the, the quote-unquote barbarity of Ethiopians, you know, the primitiveness of them, so that it could justify the war that would come. Uh, I knew that the camera was a weapon that he was using, and I know that photography has been used in the colonial effort, that images have been used to um, not only define what Africans or other people are, but also to define the person who is holding the camera. And I wanted to look at those photographs as history, but begin to speak back to them, to speak against what they were trying to portray by making these images come alive. Picking up on that point, a lot of people in the West and in the US um, and Europe would have a clear idea of what they think Mussolini's Italy, for example, would look like, because as you say, the proliferation of images um, is everywhere. But I don't think that many of our listeners um, would have a very clear image in their mind if you asked them to imagine Ethiopia in the 30s. Can you give us a, a picture, a sense of what the country was like at this time before the Italian invasion or on the eve of it? Yes. Um, well, if you went to Addis Ababa, you would see a city that was, it had some cars, but it had cattle and donkeys and goats, you know, but it was, there were roads, there were homes, there were multi-story homes, there were buildings, there were banks, there, you know, this was a city that was growing. It was also um, very international, it was a, it was a, Addis Ababa was a city that had people from other places there. And, you know, Greeks, um, other, you know, Armenians, French people lived there. There were people that, they were there. The British were there. Um, it, was metro, it was a metropolis or, or cosmopolitan, I will say. Then if you move a little further out, I think you begin to see landscape, uh, you see agriculture, you see these um, people are farmers. They, uh, you would see farmland, you would see huts, you would see that kind of living. Um, and when I, you know, part of my research involved watching old Italian movies to get a sense of what that landscape was like. And I kept seeing similarities between the two. Farmers with their carts, their horses, children milking cattle, you know, taking care of, of livestock. This is what Ethiopia outside of the city would be too. And there were other towns. Um, but Ethiopia was a growing, a growing country. And then the war came and wiped out generation of people who had been, you know, studying at the at across Europe and had come back to to help continue develop the country. Mm-hmm. 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There's something reassuring in not knowing everything about the world. And history, historical research reminds me that there is still so much to learn, which means that there's so many other possibilities for what our world was and what it can be. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As well as your fictional characters, you also give us an insight into the mind of um, one of the biggest figures in Ethiopian history, Haley Selassie, who's also appeared in, in a previous book of yours, Beneath the Lion's Gaze. So what is it that draws you back to him as a character? Because you could have just chosen to have him as a remote, off-screen figure in this story. Yeah. He was really... Um the figure of Haile Selassie, you know, I, I'm not so sure about the human being, but the figure of him was very interesting for me. Um, I, I thought, what, what is it like to leave your country, to just leave in the middle of a war and go to Bath England and you know well I'm well I'm speaking in Bristol at the moment and Bath is about 10 minutes down the road and I, I read this and was absolutely gobsmacked I had no idea that he lived in Bath oh you should go to the house it's, it's the Fairfield house is still standing I went there in my research had a great tour of the house um, in fact at the Bath theater there is a seat where he would always sit to watch newsreels of, of what was happening in Ethiopia. And he sat there and um, he said that became his seat and they put his name on the back. So if you ever can go visit, uh, but it's, it, you know, and there he was in Bath in this house that, that felt luxurious compared to what people were experiencing in Ethiopia. Um, I was fascinated by that, that, that abandonment, um, you know, he was there to also fight the war on a diplomatic side, but this was the first time that an Ethiopian emperor had ever left his people. And I, I found that fascinating. But the main reason, and I thought I could just do away with him in this book, but the main reason I put him in was that I was telling this story through the perspective of women and girls. And I wanted to stay true and stick to that. And in my research, I discovered one photograph. It was a family photograph of Haile Selassie with his children. And there was a girl there that I had never heard of. And it was his daughter, Zanabwark. There was, and I only found that one photo. And then I realized, or I learned, that he had given her in marriage at 14 to a man who was almost 50 as a way to maintain his power because the family was going to try to fight him for the throne. So he gave her to this man. She kept writing home, pleading to come back because they were not treating her well. Two years later, she's dead. And this is the man 
the, her husband was the, one of the first people to collaborate with the Italians. So all these things that Haile Selassie did to maintain his power did no good in the end. His daughter's life was basically wasted. Um, I wanted to tell that as soon as I found out this and that she was just basically erased from all mention of this family, um, he never spoke about her. I said, I, I've got to include him and her. That thread of gender runs throughout the novel and is it as much a part of it really as war and the, the additional layers of violence that women faced. I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about the status and place of women in Ethiopia at the time, both in the war and just in society in general. Mm. Well, what was interesting, um, you know, speaking of photographs, one of the ways that Mussolini recruited hundreds of thousands of young men to come into this war was by passing around across Italy photographs of women and girls, often in different states of undress. And what he said to them was, this is what you get. You take the land and you get the women. Um, this is not even going to be a war. It's going to be really easy. So women have been the trophies often. You know, when enemies in war, it always happens. The women suffer and they're assaulted. And soldiers will assault the women because they understand that it's a way to attack the men. It's also a way to, to perhaps influence future generations because soon those women might have children who are partly, you know, with the, the blood of the other side. So women have been territory and trophy. And it's, you know, in Ethiopia, um, the Italians... They were, they were assaulting, attacking women as a way to get through to the men, as a way to conquer land. But I often wondered, well, what happens within the military camps of, of the Ethiopian army? You have women suddenly who are soldiers. You have women there who are caretakers. And these women are still existing in a patriarchal world, even if they are soldiers. No matter what they're doing, they're still women. And... To the eyes of some of the men, they're just there for the taking because they can do it. They're soldiers and they need to be catered to for, you know, to keep their spirits up. Um, and that I wanted to portray that also in the book because that's the reality of, of the world that we're in. But it's definitely happening in 1935. Speaking you, to you today, it becomes clear just the layers and layers and layers of research that's involved in a book like this. As much, for example, as it sounds as if you were writing a non-fiction book, some novelists would say, why put yourself through all that pain of having to do all that work to tell this story? You know, pick pick something easier. What is it about, <laughs> what is it about historical fiction that really gets you and makes you go to the archives, search the flea markets, go to Bath, you know, what is it about that that draws you in? It's that uh, history reminds me, uh, you know, uh, there's something reassuring in not knowing everything about the world. And history, historical research reminds me that there is still so much to learn, which means that there's so many other possibilities for what our world was and what it can be. And that if I could find in 1935 women and girls who were willing to get a rifle or get their knives and charge against an army with tanks, 
What does it say about the possibilities of women and girls today when we're facing, you know, um, forces that are as 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 manipulative and as oppressive as they were in 35. And so history affirms something for me about the present. It lets me know that what we're experiencing today is nothing new. And we are still standing and those regimes fell. Um, also, you know, there were... There's no way I could make up some of these historical personalities that lived back then. There was one I could not put in the book because I said, no one will believe me. No one will believe that a human being like this existed and he will take, so, and he was British, sorry to say, but it was, he was one of my favorite. It was a real human being, Ordwin Gate. Um, I believe he's a distant relative of, of, who was Lawrence of Arabia. Um, but Ord Wingate, um, I can't remember what school he went to in, in England now, but, you know, had risen up in the military ranks, came from, a, from an established family. And there were stories of him calling meetings with higher ups. They would come in and he would be wearing nothing but his socks. Um, I would read biograph- autobiographies of people who encountered him in Ethiopia he was there with the British forces. He led the British forces. And they said that he stank so much that Ethiopians and British, are, are, he, they would just clear the area. He would wear an onion as a necklace and just bite it. Like, he just didn't... I was like, how does this person exist? Like, but he was brilliant. He was a brilliant brilliant strategist. But I just... I, I, there, these people exist, and part of research is when you find them. And you just realize, God, there's so many different people in this world. As, as you say, I can see why, why you would have been put off including him because it's, <laughs> it's stranger than fiction. You would have thought, yeah. that's a bizarre caricature, really, yeah. wouldn't you? If you'd yeah, nobody, people would accuse me of you know, saying something negative about like, the British, but he existed. <laughs> something that just comes up again and again and again in the book is guns and ammunition and almost an obsession on the Ethiopian side um, about guns. What did that kind of symbolise to you? Well, you know, for Hirut, the gun was the possession given by... Her father gave it to her just before he died, and it was the only thing that she had, that she owned. The gun was 40 years old. Most of the rifles if uh, that Ethiopians were using against the Italians initially were 40 to 50 years old. Um, those guns symbolized a history, that first encounter with Italy 40 or 50 years ago when Italy tried to colonize Ethiopia the first time. Those rifles were used. They stayed within the family. People didn't need new rifles because they were only using those rifles to keep predators away from livestock. But what those guns symbolized was an era, a sense of victory, a sense of who Ethiopia is. They became family heirlooms. Um, Ethiopians would make notches in the barrel for how many Italians were killed. And so those rifles also carried stories on them. And this was something very important to, um, to Ethiopians. That, that gun was something else besides just a weapon. Obviously, the book has garnered a huge amount of praise, uh, most 
you know, including a Booker Prize nomination. So you've obviously done something right here. What do you think are the key elements of creating a really great historical novel? Take risks. I think take risks that it can be told in a way that's more creative than perhaps the way that time unfolded in that history. Uh, I would, anyone interested um, in writing this, I, I would just say, take the risks, do justice to that moment. And finally, I think fiction is a really interesting thing to discuss when we usually talk about nonfiction on this on this podcast, because I think often the sense it gives you of a time period is more about feeling and emotion than about fact, which is what we're often dealing with. What feelings did you want people to take away about this episode in history from your book? Oh, that's a good question. I think that uh, I would, at the end, I would like them to think about uh, the possibilities that, that exist in the world when people unite and fight together. And that no person, no woman, no girl is too small to actually make a change in, the, in world history. That was Ma'aza Mengiste. The Shadow King is available now, published by Canongate. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Kenneth Austin will be speaking about Jews in Reformation Europe. Yeah.